opening to the truth of what we are. It's a purification to blossom in the Dhamma. So when you describe your suffering like the little chick that has to break out of the shell, it's painful. We're used to being in our little shell, whatever it is, whatever it's made of. It may not be made of such good things. When we stop to look and see, what are we? What are we doing? How do we live? What's the condition of our mind? The world doesn't teach us to do this. But the Buddha, out of his great compassion, he had realized that most superior, most sublime possibility for a human being. And he could just sit back and enjoy the fruit of that. But he didn't, out of compassion, out of very great compassion for beings with little dust in their eyes. And that must be us too, because we made it here to stop and look and purify. If there's a lot of dukkha coming up, we have to be very careful not to take it personally this thing something's wrong it's part of the project after all didn't the Buddha teach the four noble truths and number one is dukkha we have to know that see that we have to uh, understand oh yeah suffering what we thought was just a, a source of pleasure and and happiness is in fact full of disappointment and delusion. And by recognizing that, we have the opportunity then to discover the causes for that, abandon them, realize there's a possibility to end that suffering, and then develop the path towards its end. So that's what we're doing. We come from a culture that prescribes something so completely opposite and so completely not workable, not fruitful. In the end, look at the ending of things. Look at the state of the world. Look at the state of our mind and we see something's not working. And then we, we work with that. It's not hopeless. 
there is so much that we can do with that if we understand the Buddha's instructions. We've touched on samadhi and the importance of stilling the mind. Stilling the mind is not easy because the mind is so busy. And stopping and watching the busyness is not enough. So there is really something that we need to observe about the mind. And one of those things is that there are obstacles to the purification. It's like when you get into conflicts. It's good to understand what is the source of that unrest or that inner turmoil, what is what's causing it we can see that in purification of conduct and speech, we change our ways of doing things and then we can develop virtue in our interactions with people, keeping precepts. Here we have also the renunciant precepts. And in our speech as well, we learn how to speak kindly, truthfully, harmlessly, speaking and acting harmlessly. And this practice of virtue applies for our mental field. That's probably the most important field of virtue because from there comes all our conduct and words. They all emerge from whatever our mind is being conditioned with. And so we have to be extremely careful and conscientious to examine how we live, what choices we make, and what we value. What do we base our choices on? What do we intend for ourselves and others? So this is why if we look at the Eightfold Noble Path, it's a path of purification from beginning to end starting with right view and right intentions, right understanding and right intentions support each other. And then out of that emerges virtue. So right speech, right action, right livelihood. Right livelihood here in in this context is studying the condition of the mind, knowing it, being aware of it, and not reacting in the ways that we're habituated, developing something new, something fresh, something pure out of that. So the sila component seems to be only dealing with our activities in the world, but no, much more foundational than that. This is where the rest of the path goes It goes to right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And those are the practice aspects of the path, or limbs of the path. Those particular practices apply to mental development. Heart, the mind is the heart, not the brain, not the physical heart, but our quality of knowing, our beingness, our way of relating and understanding and being. Coming up to the obstacles, it's important for us to know what we're dealing with, what is 
preventing us from just being completely pure and joyful, buoyant inside, unencumbered, unhindered, unstressed. Is there anybody here who's unstressed? I will follow that person. The Buddha was unstressed, for sure. He knew the way. And you may have observed the hindrances all emerge from craving. This is the house builder, isn't it? And we're here to deconstruct all of that. Quite simply put, the hindrances are greed or sense-desire, aversion. And greed and aversion are basically both inappropriate ways of paying attention to the present moment, to what's arising in the mind. If there's sense desire and we get caught in it, it's because we have inappropriate attention to that which is attractive or beautiful or delicious. It bribes the mind into thinking, if you follow this, you're going to be happy. You're going to be content. You'll be satisfied. And so we follow it And it never ends. You eat something lovely and you just want more. You make a lot of money and you want more. There's no end to what we want from what we get. So wanting begets wanting. Greed begets greed. Aversion begets aversion. And the same is true with the wholesome qualities. If we develop loving kindness, that will help us to develop more loving-kindness, if we develop contentment, if we develop gratitude, we learn a skill in developing that. Most of us are pretty skilled in greed, hatred, and delusion. But we can undo that. And it's a gradual process, quite a gradual training. The other hindrances, they don't seem as serious, but they're obstacles no less in their own ways. So there's sloth and torpor and restlessness and doubt. Maybe doubt is the most compromising of all because it seems so not weighty somehow. Oh, well, not sure, but... I'm not sure, but... I'm still not sure. That keeps on happening, not being sure. The Buddha compared the image of water in relationship to all of these mind states. So think of greed as a mind that has had a dye put in it, like the dye of wanting, and it's insatiable. Just like if you put a dye into water, you don't get a clear mirror. You can't see properly what's in there. So when there's greed in the mind, our perception is distorted. We're not able to see what we're looking at, for what it really is. We think it's beautiful, and it's worth making an effort to achieve that, to own it, perpetuate it, sustain it. And then it becomes an obstacle to clarity, to present moment awareness, to knowledge, to understanding of our condition, our situation. And anger, or aversion, is the mind that is 
divided. It's destroyed. It's not unified. It, it doesn't have a strength in it. It's obsessed with ill will. And this is like water that is boiling over. So again, how can we see what's truly there when we're paying inappropriate attention to it in, in a negative way? Because we feel averse. So we pick it up with a very unpleasant interpretation. And then we want to conflict with it, get rid of it, delete it. If you get a virus on on your computer, these are things that we try to destroy or remove, but not in a wholesome way because we are so worked up that even when that object is no longer there, the hatred or the aversion, whenever we think of it, remember it, it can inflame the mind and the mind becomes obsessed with that. How can we still a mind that is boiling over? And then with sloth and torpor, it's like water that has slimy, mossy growth all over it, all through it. So it's impossible to see what's really there. A mind that is dull and listless and enervated, has no energy, has no strength for the work at hand, cannot see, cannot look, can't open the eyes. So this is a mind that is obstructed. And then restlessness and worry or anxiety, this is a mind that is agitated like water that has the wind blowing creating ripples in it. Again, it's not clear, it's not still. We want the stillness, we want the stability. We want a clear pool that gives us a true reflection of what is really going on in the mind. Just like if we were a surgeon and we had to operate and use mindfulness to hold the object and see clearly what it really is. So in ancient times, the surgeons who were being trained, young medical students, were given a lotus leaf, and they had to do a little surgery on the lotus leaf. Do you remember that one? Uh, They had to uh, carve a character into the lotus leaf without cutting through it. They had to cut a character into the lotus leaf without cutting through it. Now imagine that. That would take an incredible skill. We're developing that kind of a skill that we have to carve a space in our mind through all these obstacles without destroying the fabric of the mind, the the delicacy of our attention. You can see how hard it is to keep mindfulness on on the object that keeps sliding off. Until we develop a skill in doing that, then we can't hold the object in view of our mind's attention long enough, still enough for us to really understand what is there, there in the mind? What is it? Because what we think we see in the mind is not what we see. It's not what we're seeing. It's not what's really there. 
aversion is a distorted perception that's exhausted with anger and hatred and ill will. And agitation is the same. It's a kind of a declension of, of aversion, restlessness. There's no object that you can settle on. Nothing is pleasant. It's just all agitating. It must be a bit like city life. You walk out on the street and there's not much stillness at all. And then there's doubt. Doubt which is like muddy water. The Buddha compared it to water that the mud is stirred up so it's really, you can't make much out of it. This is a, a tremendous obstacle and doubt is uh, so elusive because it's always vacillating, going from one thing to another. So it has agitation, it also has aversion in it because you keep saying, well, I can't do this. Go try something else. Group's too big, the group's too small, the food's too much, the food's too late. The mind that will always find the broken or the crack, the bit that isn't good enough, complaining and doubting and having no faith. But really the hindrances can be worked with and if we work with them using the factors of deep concentration, there's a beautiful way of pairing them up that we have antidotes for each of these hindrances. And of course, the one antidote that works for all of them and that is needed as the brother or sister or dear companion of samadhi is sati, mindfulness. Mindfulness and samadhi are pals, really best friends. They keep supporting each other again and again. And sati has three stages that we need to develop before we can really use it skillfully and establish such a deep concentration that we can perform this type of surgery without breaking through the lotus leaf. And the first one is using sati as a way to hold the object and keep remembering to hold it. I have a very beautiful quote here that I want to read to you. This was from a nun named Mingur Yogini, Tibetan nun. She was over a hundred years old. She didn't die that long ago. Don't wander, don't wander, she says. Place mindfulness on guard along the road of distraction. So we, we set mindfulness up as the gatekeeper. The gatekeeper means that here is mindfulness working with effort. Here I'm bringing in the faculties, five faculties of the mind, which is faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. So I'll just bring them up uh, within the conversation. Mindfulness is the gatekeeper, and what the gatekeeper is meant to do, really, is bring into effect the four right efforts. So if we notice that there's a strong sense of aversion, or a sleepiness, or agitation, doubt, dreaming about ice cream, or 
whatever it is that's going on. And as soon as we can identify this, this is not wholesome, this is not skillful, this is not giving me the ability to develop stillness, my stability of mind. It's like you're trying to build something valuable and purify the mind and we're scattering our tools all over the floor. But we want to gather them together. And this is what mindfulness does. It gathers together what is a wholesome, skillful means for the mind to become stable. That would mean any kind of a hindrance that we can recognize out. If it's already in the mind, we evict, we abandon it. We just tell it. This is where we have to be like a self-guide. Not just sit there and say, oh, there's that again. I'm a failure. This is not, not helping the situation. This is wrong view. Because there isn't anybody, there's nothing to fail, no one. We have to bring up the understanding about the emptiness of self. There isn't a self that can fail. Just like there isn't a self that can be enlightened. The self can never be enlightened because there isn't a self. Awakening doesn't happen when there's a view of self. It's when the view of self is abandoned that the mind can awaken to the truth of its nature. So in the same way, if we use that kind of language, I can't do this, I'm a failure, this is not for me, then that's creating another obstacle of wrong view. Me, mine, me making, my making, Self-making is opposite to opening the path, to removing the obstacles. So mindfulness sees the obstacle, names it, and then uses right effort of abandoning what is unwholesome and preventing what is unwholesome from entering. At the same time, it sustains what is wholesome in the mind, whatever gives us the right perspective, the sense of confidence, of faith, of stilling the mental fabrications, putting up a red light to stop, like a real stopping of all the busyness and chatter of the mind, letting go thought. Samadhi can begin. For jhana, jhana coming from the verb jayati. Jayati means the burning, burning of defilements. So gatekeeper mindfulness, we set it up to help burn up those defilements. And we do that by sending out what is detrimental and bringing in what is a support for the practice aiming right attention, aiming the mind on the object, holding to the object, not holding and grasping the object, but just inviting that skill, practicing that skill of being present for the breath, knowing it long, short, or the whole body of the breath, or the breath, if you want to call it, the breath expanding throughout the body from the beginning to the end knowing the difference between 
the in-breath and the out-breath. That much attention we need. And then calming, calming the sensation, the physical sensation of the breath, just calming it so there isn't excitement, agitation, attachment, aversion of any kind with whatever is coming up. You like the breath, you don't like the breath. It's a breath. Just breathe without preferences, just with an evenness of mind. And that develops the ability to absorb into the object, to let the object fill the mind so that we can experience the vastness of it. The object of of breath is not meant to be limited to some narrow point anywhere in the body, but it's the other side of that where Mindfulness helps us to develop the skill of stilling the mind and giving it immeasurability. That broadening our perspective so that there's no sense of self possible in that. It's just the knowing of the mind attending to the object. Just like a nurse attends to a patient. When a nurse properly attends to a patient, then It's to one patient at a time, just one person. Or a mother attending to a child. Even if she has many children, each child will be attended to one at a time to really attend properly. This is what gatekeeper mindfulness does for samadhi. And in that way, samadhi develops and intensifies and is energized, and it gives back to mindfulness the energy to go deeper and study the object. Hmm. What can I clearly know without the distortion of the hindrances, without the dye in the water, the slime, the hurricane, the tsunami, whatever you want to call it, the vacillation? There's very lovely similes around the hindrances When there's sense desires in the mind and obstructing the mind, it's like someone with a debt. And when mindfulness can help us to remove that, it's like the joy that you can feel when you have no debt. You're released from your debt. There's no no attachment anymore to that. In the same way, when there's aversion in the mind, It's like a mind that has a terrible disease. You know how it is when you have a terrible headache. Or if you have pneumonia, you can't breathe, you don't get enough oxygen. If you've been in a car accident and and you're in terrible pain, then the mind is overwhelmed by those painful feelings. When we are aware of aversion and we can just know it as a defilement, abandon it and bring up that which will be the antidote of aversion, joy. If we have joy in the mind, actually the joy of being released from that aversion, this is what concentration gives the mind. When the mind can rest in its own stillness, 
a natural luminosity. Otherwise, it's like dark sky. There's no sun. Suddenly the sun comes out. We can see the sign of the nimitta, which brings such a brightness and a bliss which is not the happiness of the sense realm. It's pure. This is something that we long to experience and sustain and develop. So the other energy that we're using with the hindrances is we're abandoning what doesn't support us and we're supporting what does support us. So mindfulness invites the joyful states and the factors of concentration, the takavichara, piti, sukha, and ekagata. So that's the ability to have appropriate attention to hold the object and know it well, deeply, And then by knowing the three characteristics of the object, there isn't attachment there. Even letting the mind be filled with that object so there's nothing else. We have the sense of disappearing into the object, no sense of self at all. And just experiencing the gladness of that. That's like someone freed from a terrible disease, the disease of aversion of pushing things away, of having to protect ourselves, of, of being defended, of being fearful and anxious and agitated. Oh, I jumped ahead a little. A mind that is freed from sloth and torpor is like somebody let out of prison. There's a lot of joy, you know, if you, I've never been in prison, but we can be in prison in our own mind the jail of our mind, the jail of our anger, of our depression. When we feel sadness, it can be so heavy that we can't find a way out of it. It can surround us and create this terrible locked-in feeling. But when we're released from that, then tremendous joy, tremendous lightness. The same is true with the mind that is released from agitation and anxiety. How many of us experience anxiety frequently, regularly? This does not serve us. Eventually we get sick in some way or another. Stress, anxiety, agitation. And to be freed from that is like somebody freed from slavery to be bonded to someone else. Actually, we are. We're like slaves to the sense realm. We're slaves to the world, to, to the sense media, our own sense media and to the worldly media. And we become foolish and weak when we do that. Driving down the road and you see a big sign and it says, you need this. It's about some kind of lotion. And innocently we go out and someone brings it to the monastery. We like it. We think, oh, I'd love to have that again. Just some lotion. But there it is, the attachment gets created because it feels good. It feels nice. It does good work. makes your hands soft. They don't get cracked and peel and blistered. And everything that samsara offers us does that. 
at some level or other, or tries to do that, and we get convinced over and over again. So it's a kind of slavery. And when we're freed from that, we stop bouncing up and down in front of the media of the world and in front of our own sense media, the eyes, the the forms that we see, the beautiful sounds we hear, that we want to hear them again. Repeat, repeat, repeat. But when we have the repetition of following the meditation object, we don't like that. We want something more interesting. Actually, if we really look properly at the meditation object, it is so interesting because the whole world is in there. Not the samsara world, but the whole world of freedom from enslavement, from bondage, from prison, from sickness, from delusion, is in, in the way we attend to that meditation object. Therefore, the quality of our attention is so important. So very important. And this is why the way that mindfulness combined with wisdom, sampajanya, the ability to clearly understand and see our experience, enables us to give ourselves more and more to the moment and let go of what doesn't support that process. Sustaining it, continuously, where it's mindfulness, clearly knowing. And then the third level is the ability to understand the causes and conditions that lead to these obstacles returning again and again. So that when they do return, we know we have developed enough of a skill, enough equanimity to just flick them away. They never get enough space to land on anymore. We usually give the hindrances enough room like an international airport for them to land in. So they can just come in and make themselves at home. But our ability to sustain right mindfulness Right effort, right mindfulness, together, continuously, diligently, sustaining the wholesome factors and keeping out the unwholesome, that skill gives us the ability to experience the deeper states of stillness in the mind, the jhanic states, where mindfulness and one-pointedness are purified, And this is really the heart of our battle with distraction. As the Mingur Yogini says, along the road of distraction, Mara lies in ambush. So we cannot rest. Once the mind is really concentrated, we start to have so much joy. We don't need to go to the world for joy because we have this pure joy arising in the heart from our concentration practice. This is a joy that the Buddha encouraged us to develop. We cannot develop this path of awakening without joy. That's why concentration 
stillness, stability, steadfastness in the practice is so important because it, it gives us enough joy that we can go to the deeper states and sustain them until our equanimity is very polished and pure. Our one-pointedness can really stave off sense desire. No need to go there anymore. Our doubt is, is put to rest. But that's not the end of the path. Because then we have to still emerge from that depth of uh, stillness to investigate deeply. And their mindfulness is so purified, it can plunge right into the object and see the impermanence and experience it intuitively in such a way see the dukkha, experience it intuitively in such a way, see the anatta or the non-self, the emptiness of all these fabrications, and experience them in such a way that the defilements are extinguished to such a degree that we can be in the stream, the stream enterer. This is very important for us to do because once one is able to enter the stream, then there's a deep transformation within the heart that prevents one from falling back into states of decline. We notice how easily our habits take over the mind if we don't practice. If we don't meditate regularly and apply our minds to these skills, then we go back to our worldly skills and they take over again to distract the mind. So Mara lies in ambush. This is what she says. Mara is the mind clinging to like and dislike. So look into the essence of this magic. It's like a magic trick. Look into the essence of it and see it's empty. Freeing ourselves from dualistic fixation. This is why with a concentrated mind, the mind comes to unity. It converges on one point and it's able to stop there long enough to develop, instead of hindrances, to develop the bojangas, the enlightenment, the awakening factors. Mindfulness investigation of mind states, then energy that starts with effort, but then it becomes virya, which is really much more purified. Virya and then piti or the bliss, they work together and feed each other to strengthen the mind. These are the dynamic awakening factors that lead to more joy. And then the refinement of joy, because when the joy is very fresh and new, we're overexcited, and then we need to calm that. By calming the breath sensation, later we'd be calming the joy factor, so that the mind is so serene. And out of that serenity comes the deeper concentration. And then out of the deeper stilling of the mental fabrications, complete stilling of them, is when we are able to perfect upeka, and then we can experience liberation of mind. Right effort, 
right mindfulness, right concentration. That's the purification, the virtue, the highest virtue of the mind, Nibbana. Free from dualistic fixation, there is no duality in that. Realize that your mind is unfabricated primordial purity. It's unfabricated. We're always chasing after fabrications. There is no end to fabrications, and the mind is a very experienced fabricator. It can create anything. That's why it can't be trusted until it's tamed. Just like the cowherd, the Buddha gives an example of a cowherd, We can't know what it is to be a cowherd until we learn how to herd cows. Anybody here got any cows? We're not herding cows. We're herding all these skillful qualities of mind. We're developing them and we're keeping the hindrances out. Or you could say we're keeping the cows herded so that they don't go and eat the farmer's crops. And then once they're all tamed, then we can rest in the joy of the still mind because the hindrances have been cooled. The mind that has burnt away the hindrances temporarily experiences the jhanas, first, second, third, and fourth ardent, resolute, secluded from the world. Here we're experiencing seclusion of the body. We're as a group, physically we're secluded from the world. This is kaya viveka, but that's not enough. We have to experience the chitta viveka, which is the seclusion from the hindrances. And the factors of awakening, by developing those, we learn how to develop them, When they aren't there, we learn how to bring them in, develop them, and sustain them. And with the hindrances, when they're there, we learn how to remove them, keep them out, and prevent them from returning. This is very important. That's how we can develop the ultimate viveka or seclusion of mind, to awaken to the truth this way. Realize that your mind is unfabricated primordial purity. There is no Buddha elsewhere. Look at your own face. There is nothing else to search for. Rest in your own place. Where is our own place? Where is our true home? It's nowhere else but here. That's why in the monastic tradition we take the going forth from home to homelessness because we have no true home in the world. We look for the true home in the discovery and the realization of our Buddha nature. So I stop there for tonight. <laughs>